And we are now in the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent uh, is traditionally in the Christian calendar a season leading up to Easter of preparing our hearts and living more fully into what it is that God is calling us to do as people. And um, oftentimes growing up, Lent was a very, very mysterious thing for me because we didn't talk about it in the tradition that I grew up in. And I heard about friends in other traditions that would give things up for Lent, like important things, like chocolate, or like life-altering things, like coffee, they would give up for Lent. And they had this kind of steely resolve about it that this is just what they did. And I admired that from a safe distance, but I never wanted to participate in anything like that. I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I could do that, like give something up like that for 40 days. I would be tempted way too much as soon as I gave something like that up. So maybe you in this season of Lent or a friend, maybe you saw a friend uh, give up Facebook for Lent. That's a very popular thing to do or social media. And we've only been in Lent since Wednesday of this last week. And so maybe still if you've given that up, you're still reflexively reaching for your phone and kind of jittery a little bit now. Uh, But choosing to intentionally give something up, whether it's for Lent or otherwise, is hard work. And that's why maybe it doesn't get as much traction as some of our other spiritual practices that we talk about in the Christian tradition. Now, another link here with Lent is uh, the 40 days of Lent leading into Easter uh, also are intentionally positioned to remind us of the 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And so after this period of wilderness temptation of 40 days, Uh, Jesus is tempted, and yet even after giving up solid food for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus has the strength to resist the evil one and to emerge triumphant and in a right relationship with his father from that time. So can I be frank with you? I read that story, I think about my friends who give things up for Lent, and I actually find both of those horribly discouraging for me personally. Because I think to myself, like, I'm just not that fantastic at living the victorious, overcoming Christian life all of the time. I get tempted, and I don't always have the strength to resist, and I feel like I'm in decent shape. I've not been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So if I made a decision to give up, like, for example, chocolate for Lent, which I have not, immediately, everywhere I would go, I would start to notice, like, giant Purdy's bunnies everywhere, and, like, Uh, like uh, suddenly I would immediately become tempted by Cadbury cream eggs and their nectar of goodness inside of them or like um, those melt-in-your-mouth yummy mini eggs that I always have way too many of. So as soon as you give something up, suddenly like you're acknowledging that it's kind of hard work to resist temptation. And this morning when we wrap up our series, uh, teaching series we've been in on prayer, we're going to be going through Jesus' uh, Pray Like This prayer, which he models for us in Matthew chapter 6. And at the very end of the prayer, there's this funny little phrase that we encounter when it comes to the topic of temptation. So take your Bibles or your device and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. 
And normally I preach from the New Living Translation, but you might be more familiar uh, with the Pray Like This Prayer or the Lord's Prayer from the New International Version. And in that uh, translation, the prayer reads like this. We'll put it up on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And here's the verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Phrase in verse 13, lead us not into temptation. If you think about it for a minute, it's a little bit of a perplexing petition to ask God for. Does God lead us into temptation? And if he doesn't, why are we asking him to do something that he's not going to do? And if he does lead us into temptation, that sounds sketchy. Can a loving father who's ruling and reigning in heaven, all the other parts of the prayer, who's holy and blameless, who cares for our needs, who forgives our sins, then just at the very end of it, lead us into places of temptation? It's a perplexing phrase in the prayer. And it's not a new question that, people have wrestled with. The early church wrestled hard with this dilemma. And as early as the second century, followers of Jesus were saying, um, hey, this line, lead us not into temptation, what's up with that? So the African theologian Tertullian wrote, far be the thought that the Lord should seem to tempt as if he were either ignorant of the limits of someone's faith or else eager to overthrow that faith. Tertullian was saying, in as many words, God's not trying to trick you. And he references, as his counterpoint to this, the clarity of the text in James chapter 1, verses 13. Uh, in the book of James, it says this, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, oh, God's tempting me, because God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So on the surface, this is one of those examples in the New Testament where you look at those two texts, those two phrases, Jesus' instructions to us as to how to pray and James' instructions about the character of God and they can seem to perhaps contradict each other. We need to pray to God who doesn't lead us to, not to lead us into temptation on the one hand, and on the other hand, God never tempts anyone, this verse says. So in order to parse them apart, we need to think about the question, what does the Bible teach us about temptation? What do we see through the scriptures about the topic of temptation? And so we're going to look at three main things this morning. We're going to look at what temptation is, we're going to look at how temptation works, and then we're going to talk finally about how to resist temptation, because that's really the heart of the Pray Like This prayer. So let's look at the first part, temptation. And when we think about temptation, we need to do just a little bit of clarification in our thinking here. Because the first thing that we need to understand is that it's not a sin to be tempted, it is not a sin to be tempted. To be tempted is actually just part of being human. 
It's part of living in this world. Sin, opportunities to choose things other than God's best for us as humankind, is alive and well in our world. And that means that temptation to sin is just part of life. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin, temptations are inevitable, Jesus says. So, it's not a sin to be tempted. And if you are never tempted, then check your pulse because you probably do not have one. If you are alive, you're going to be tempted. I love how author and playwright George Orwell puts this. He says, It's probable that some who achieve or aspire to sainthood have never felt much temptation to be human beings. (laughs) If you're a human being you will be tempted. But it's not a sin to be tempted. How do we know this? Well, because Jesus was tempted. And yet, the scriptures are clear that he was without sin. The second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully human during his time on earth, experienced temptation. In fact, the scriptures say he experienced all of the temptations that we can be tempted with just as we are, and yet he never gave in to temptation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, Jesus never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You see, if Jesus was tempted to sin, then it cannot for you and I be a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted tempted. But this actually highlights here for us another important aspect of the Bible's teaching on temptation, and that is this, that it's not a sin to be tempted, and also temptation can be resisted. Have you ever heard a person say something like, well, friend, God never gives you more than you can bear? Have you heard people say that to you? Most often in that context, Usually people are talking about hardships and they're trying to be kind and say like, hey, friend, you seem like you're under a lot of burdens right now. Don't worry, God's not gonna give you more than you can bear. So you can receive that kindly as a gentle expression of support, but you can also receive it as a horrible piece of theology. It's simply not true. Could you imagine being present at the stoning of Stephen and saying, you know, Stephen, I'm just glad that God has not permitted more than you can bear. Or sitting at the foot of the cross or at the martyrdom of the apostle John and saying, you know, God just doesn't permit you to more than you can bear. So let's be clear about something this morning. The phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can bear is actually in the Bible But it's about the topic of temptation. It's not about how much you can handle. It's not about trials. This phrase comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 10 verse 12, where the apostle Paul says this about temptation. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Because the temptation that is in your life are no different than what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. 
or more than you can bear. When you are tempted, he is faithful. He will show you a way out so that you can endure. So the scripture is teaching us something here about temptation, and that is that it can be resisted. That you will never find yourself in a position where God creates a scenario where the only option for you possible is to sin. It just won't happen. The temptations that you experience will not be more than you can bear because in his love, in his faithfulness, God will provide a way out of the temptation to sin, not necessarily out of the situation that you are in. The way out may be incredibly rigorous or difficult to choose. It may involve suffering. It may involve death. But there will never be a situation where you can legitimately say to God, well, there was nothing I could do. I was tempted, but all of the options were sin. God will not permit more temptation than you can bear. God will never give you more temptation than you can handle. So can we purge our language of the ridiculous nonsense that God doesn't give people more than they can handle? God doesn't give you more temptation than you can handle. It was Oscar Wilde who famously said, I can resist anything except for temptation. Not your Bible. He also said the only way to be rid of temptation is to obey it. (laughs) Also not in your Bible. God says the way to resist temptation is to stand strong. More on that later. So temptation is a fact of life. You will be tempted. Second thing, temptation, the temptation that comes into your life can be resisted. But Here's where we begin to have the discussion. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it is sin when we yield to temptation, when we give in or give way or give place to temptation. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to pray into. In the New Living Translation, it's much clearer than it is in the NIV. And don't let us yield to temptation is what we're praying and asking God. God, would you give me the strength, the way out, so that I don't yield or fall into sin and temptation. Rescue me, rescue us from the evil one. We are praying that God would protect and guard us as we go through our lives and experience temptations. That the Holy Spirit would keep us safe from ourselves and from the devil. That Jesus would give us the strength and wisdom not to yield to temptation for yielding, as the hymn says, is sin. See, even Shakespeare understood this distinction. In the play, Measure for Measure, the character Angelo says, "'Tis one thing to be tempted, another thing to fall." Two separate things. So it's not a sin to be tempted, it's a sin to yield, to give in to the temptation. And that helps bring some clarity or resolution to the thought that these two verses, Matthew 6 and James 1, are in conflict with each other. They aren't. They're just simply two different ways of expressing the same thing, two perspectives on the same question of temptation. We're to pray that we would not yield to temptation because it's clear that temptations are not from God because God doesn't tempt anyone. 
But this still leaves us with the perplexing question, okay, then where does temptation come from? And we need to just acknowledge that this sermon is not a full treatise on the origins of sin, but we're going to look briefly at just how temptation actually comes to us. How does temptation work? Because if we can understand a little bit more about how temptation functions in our lives, then we can understand more about how to resist it and how not to yield to it, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 13. But look at what Jesus also says in Matthew 6, 13. He says, we're to pray that we uh, do not yield to temptation and also that we be rescued from evil or rescued from the evil one. And so when it comes to temptation, one of the things that we need to immediately then acknowledge what Jesus is saying is that it's more than just you involved in this process and equation, struggling alone in the world somehow. See, temptation is actually an initiated invitation. Someone or something wants to take you down. And the, we pray that we would be rescued from the evil one because it's important to recognize that we have an enemy. The Bible names him as Satan or the devil or the evil one. And it's clear that he's not just interested in attacking God. He's also actively interested in destroying you as an image bearer of God. 1 Peter 5, 8 gives just one example of biblical theology where temptation in your life might be coming from. And that is where Peter says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. And then he uses a word picture. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so stand firm against him. Notice again, almost every verse where we come against temptation, the encouragement is stand firm, stand your ground, and be strong in your faith. Now, as soon as we start to talk about this, there are a number of different questions that can come up in our minds. And so I will say it again, as I'm often fond of saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. Remember that temptation can be resisted. And so sometimes I'll hear another phrase kicked about, and that is the phrase, the devil made me do it. And I think it's important to recognize a couple parts of this. Number one, it's partly true. (laughs) The devil loves to initiate invitations into temptation for us. The scripture speaks of the dangers uh, that he provides. But when it comes to temptation, the devil may have had a part in extending you the invitation, but he didn't do the doing of the deed. You did it. The devil made who do it? (laughs) Me do it. I did the doing. You did the doing. So, When you kick this phrase about or hear this phrase, don't give the devil too much credit. He and his demonic forces may have opened a door for something, but you did the choosing to walk through it. So simply doing, saying, the devil made me do it, 
is not true because remember, we can resist temptation. And this is because temptation is actually a cycle that we become active participants in. Look again at that text we read from James chapter 1. Where does temptation come from? Temptation comes from our own desires. They entice us. They drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow and given place in our lives, it gives birth to death. See, temptation is a cycle that you and I are active participants in. So let me put up just a a photo of this just to help kind of capture it a little bit for us. And there's so much more that could be said about this um, that might ring true in your experience. But let's take an example and kind of walk it through the process. So let's just pick on coveting for a minute. So I want something that I do not currently possess. So starting at the top of the cycle, with enticement, James 1 says, I become enticed by a desire that is rooted in my heart somewhere. And so I think to myself, hmm, I allow myself to begin to dwell and become preoccupied on that desire. I want something that I don't possess, and I, should, I think I deserve that. I, I need to fulfill that desire in some way. And so I begin to kind of go there in my mind and I get preoccupied with how that desire might be filled and what my life might look like if I owned or possessed that person or position or whatever it is. And then I become jealous of other people that have it and I notice that other people have it. And then I begin to imagine why I deserve it instead of them. And then I move into conception. I begin to imagine how I might actually act out to get the thing that I want. I begin to build a pathway that I'm walking down and I think to myself, you know what? They got that. They bought it. I have a credit card. I could buy it too. I have no plan to pay that back whatsoever and I have no money for it, but I deserve it and I need it. I'm going to get it. And so I begin to actually create a ritual or a concept of how I actually go about acquiring the thing that I want and then birth, I act out in some way. I act out sexually outside of the bounds of my marriage relationship. I act out of a place of greed and I buy a house that I can't afford over the long run. I figure out I'm going to possess that thing that I want that I covet. And then when I get it and when the dust settles and it doesn't actually satisfy me in the way that I think, then I begin to experience shame and I begin to experience that desire, impulse to hide, to cover. And eventually, if I nurture this cycle long enough, it leads to a hardness, a condition in my heart that is so hard to this that if someone named that in my life, I would get, I wouldn't even be aware of the fact that it would be sin. Because I've nurtured the cycle, so it's led to a place of spiritual deadness and death so seared by repeatedly giving in to temptation that I actually cease to care. And if you leave that to grow and fester in your life, ultimately it leads you to a separation from God and from other people in relationships. And this is why it's important to understand the cycle of temptation and take steps to break it 
in your life in the power of the Holy Spirit because, yes, it's a desire that we participate in, but remember, yielding to that desire is not a foregone conclusion or an inevitable outcome. There's steps that we can take in the power and strength that God gives us to actually resist temptation, even if we've begun to walk through some of this cycle. One of the things, though, that becomes a challenge for us, and I like the way that Franklin Jones, an American journalist, says this. He says, what makes resisting temptation actually difficult for so many people is that they don't want to discourage temptation completely. Let's be honest about it. Some part of us actually likes to be tempted because it's, it's, there's, a, there's an, a, a, sometimes an element of fun to experience the pleasures of sin for a season. Some of us don't want to resist temptation because we don't want to actually take the steps necessary to discourage it in our lives. Some of you may be in places where you actually want to consciously or otherwise, allow that sin to continue to define you because part of your identity as a person has become wrapped up in being that person who's given to addiction or that person who's given to and consumed with worry and anxiety or that person who gives in to anger consistently or who lies habitually. And then we just kind of cover it over and say, oh, it's just genetics. My family's predisposed to anger. Some of us don't actually want to discourage temptation enough in our lives that we begin to take it seriously and be aware of the road that we're on and where it's ultimately heading because nurturing this cycle of temptation ultimately leads to spiritual death. The scripture is not unclear about that. But if you wanted to resist temptation actively, what guidance does the scripture give us? Well, there's four things that we can keep in mind here that help us. How, res how do we resist temptation? The first thing that we need to do if we want to resist temptation is to remain vigilant against temptation. To watch, to be attentive, to be aware, to be wise to exercise a, a level of vigilance. Remember the image of Satan being like a lion who's just roaming around. Your job is to be a lookout, to be attentive to where the lion is kind of roaming and be prepared and aware of where you might be attacked. Jesus tells the, his disciples this in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. He says, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing. You might really want to resist temptation, but mm, in this situation, gang, your body is going to give out on you. That's going to be the area of weakness for you. Be attentive to it. And one of the things I love here is Jesus just acknowledges the fact that sometimes an area to keep watch over and be vigilant about is our bodies. I love this cartoon on how to resist food temptation. First, identify the food items you can't stop thinking about. Then remove all of them by eating them. <laughs> oh, I are dumb. <laughs> you see, 
What areas in your life do you need to resist temptation? Be aware of the temptations that you know are unique maybe to you. And so a question to think about for you today might be, do you know your areas of weakness? Are you aware of your areas of weakness? Maybe for you, it's gluttony. Maybe for you, it's sexual temptation. If it's an area of known weakness in your life, take steps to be vigilant about it. Put a filter on your devices. Watch and be attentive and careful about what you're watching and taking in. If you're tempted by greed and you know that that's an area of weakness for you, be careful to live within your means. Go to a cash-only system. Figure it out, whatever works for you. Begin to practice a radical generosity like giving things away or giving money and resources and time to other things outside of yourself, whether it's Guatemala or other causes that you intentionally take a step to break the stranglehold of greed in your life because you know that's an area of weakness for you. What is your area of weakness? Is it pride? Is it gluttony? Is it laziness? Is it you know, whatever? Whatever it is for you, do you know and could you name the areas where you are prone to falling into sin? I know my areas of weakness. I have three primary areas of weakness, and so my accountability partner and I meet every two weeks for a few hours, and if it isn't snowing outside, we go for a walk, or we sit and have a coffee, but we know each other's areas of weakness. And so when we're in that time together, we press into those areas with each other, and we never leave that time together without saying, hey, how's it going in that area of your life? for you. We look at each other's schedule and we say, hey, looking at uh, where you're going to spend your time in the next couple weeks and where you spent your time in the last few weeks, were there any areas that you noticed of exposure or weakness for you? Are you going through a season where it's high stress? Okay, how are you going to manage that? Do you have any areas of exposure based on the intensity level that you're encountering right now. And we try to help each other anticipate and remain vigilant for each other. And we say, hey, maybe text me on this is gonna be an intense season. Or we just try and help each other guard those areas where there might be weakness or exposure in our lives. It's part of remaining vigilant, being on guard, watching, resisting temptation. But you have to know those areas. You have to name them and then you have to be willing to actually step into somebody else's life and say, would you help me with these areas of weakness? So how do you resist temptation? First, by remaining vigilant and alert. Know your areas of weakness. That's a defensive mechanism. There's also an offensive mechanism, the offensive part about this. And that is another way to resist temptation is to remain in a state of battle readiness and be ready to fight temptation. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 12, 10 to 12 says this, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies that the enemy is going to bring against you. Put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. 
You see, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that we need to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy that come against us. Again and again and again, we see here also in this text, when the um, description of temptation is brought up, the instruction is, stand firm. This really is a battle. In other instances, when Paul's talking to Timothy about, in particular, uh, sexual temptation and lust, he says, you got to flee. That's your battle strategy in that situation. Get out of there. But there's a battle readiness that we need to maintain. And that's why the term spiritual warfare gets used a lot. If you want to resist the enemy and stand firm, you don't do it without a battle plan. And you certainly don't do it in your own willpower or strength and just get up in the morning and say, oh, I'm just going to power through my day and I'm going to beat anger today. I'm just not going to get angry next time. No, the scripture is clear. Like, if you want to resist that, if that's an area of weakness for you and you want to grow and ask the Lord to help break that stronghold in your life, then do it in the strength that he provides. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the armor that he gives to us. Don't just try and muscle your way through it. And so that involves prayer, gearing up with the mighty armor of God. Praying through Ephesians chapter 6 each morning, taking the time to get battle ready and saying, God, and we're doing that even in pre-gathering prayer this morning, uh, just like we gather every week from 9.45 till 10.15, just across the concourse there and pray. And we just went through the whole armor of God, prayed it over all of you, prayed it over our church, prayed it over. It's a great practice to engage in in the morning, just to say, okay, God, how might I actually today think about being ready with the shield of faith. Give me faith, God, for what I'm going to encounter today. The enemy might come at me in some way that's going, to, that's going to undermine that. I need you to strengthen me. I love what the Puritan theologian John Owen says. He says it this way. If we do not abide in prayer, yeah, we will abide in temptation. <laughs> this is what Jesus models for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And so that's the third thing about resisting temptation is do it on your knees. Remain vigilant, remain battle ready, and remain on your knees in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 continues and says, pray, on the, pray in the spirit and all times on every occasion, stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all God's holy people. Pray for other people. Do you have people praying for you? Do other people know about the circumstances and challenges of your life enough to walk with you in your journey? That's part of what it means to be a family together and a community of faith. So Katie leads a whole team of people that would love to pray for you. And you can just send an email to prayer at jerichoridge.com and that goes out to people and then immediately there's a group of people who have made a commitment to say, hey, when I get that, I want to pray for that person or that need that would love to join you and pray and be persistent in prayer for all God's holy people. If you want to be part of that group of people that prays for each other, you just go to the front page of the website, you scroll down to the bottom and you click on that e-newsletter and that sign-up piece and then you can choose and prayer is one of those boxes. Just make sure you've checked that and then you'll get that email uh, whenever that goes out. 
if you want to agree to pray for people. Maybe for you, some people in seasons of Lent, uh, instead of giving something up, they add something in. Maybe you say, okay, I'm sorry I started. I'm going to take a pass on that first week. I'm going to start today. I'm going to add in one person or thing that I'm going to pray for all through Lent. Just set a reminder on your phone for whatever, a convenient time for you and just have that person's name or that event or that thing come up and just make a commitment to remain on your knees for other people. Praying for another person and being persistent in it's one of the highest and holiest and most challenging ways that we can support each other as a community. It's just not that hard to bring someone over a meal, but to say, I will pray for you and genuinely persist in prayer for a person is hard work. And it takes tenacity. But I'm wonderfully privileged and I'm so delighted to be a part of a church that's saying, you know what? We are going to become a praying church. Not just a church that politely prays and opens uh, meetings and closes meetings with a nice brief little invocation. Like we are going to be a church that advances on our knees. We've made that commitment as elders and we're trying as hard as we can to live it out and invite people into that. And it's a tough journey. Because we're going to be tempted to give up on that. And we're going to be tempted to sort of say, this prayer business is pretty hard work. Let's, let's choose something easier, another hill that we want to climb. But as we wrap up our teaching time together, I just want to give a word of those uh, to those of us who feel that the topic of temptation actually brings up nothing but discouragement. Like my initial feelings about other people giving things up for Lent. Sometimes when we talk about temptation, the danger can become to think, you know what, Ugh, I'm just never going to beat it. Like, all this topic of resisting the devil and all that. Like, I'm not strong enough to do that. I've given in too many times. I've taken too much damage. Friend, wherever you're at today, know that the promise of grace and forgiveness is spoken over you when you bring that sin to Jesus and receive his merciful pardon. The one whom the Son of God sets free is free indeed, the scripture declares. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God is faithful, he's just, he's true to his word that he forgives those who come to him with their sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So just like we discussed two weeks ago, when you bring your sin and your shame and your guilt to God and say, I'm sorry, and invite him to cleanse and forgive you, it's done. And you can remain and walk in a place of confidence in his forgiveness. And ultimately, that's not because you're such an amazing person that you figured it out. It's confidence in God's ultimate triumph over sin. Romans 5.17 says, but even greater than our sin is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all those who will receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through the work of one man, Jesus Christ. You see, one day, friends, you and I are going to live forever from the presence of sin, but today is not that day and tomorrow doesn't look good for that either. Today, we live in a place of struggle and wrestle 
but we need to keep firmly fixed in our minds that we also live in a place where Jesus, through his work on the cross, has triumphed over sin, death, hell, and the evil one, and we as his children who are invited to name him as our father, when we walk in and invite his freedom and application of his grace into our lives, we're freed from ultimately from the penalty of sin, which is death. And so friend, today maybe you're here in this place and you've actually never accepted God's wonderful gift of grace and his gift of righteousness to you. This is the gift, the gift of forgiveness is one of the most rich and incredible and humbling gifts you could ever receive. And it's one of the most precious things that you could ever know in your life. And so if you've never done that, today is your day to come to Jesus and embrace it and say, God, I need to be confident in the forgiveness of sins. I, I reject the ability to just be a good person and think that somehow heaven will be waiting for me when I die. I come to you and cling to the righteousness of Jesus who knew no sin and whom God then took my sin and put it on him. And so I can walk with freedom and cleansed from the ultimate penalty of sin and death. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the way that you do that is receiving the gift of forgiveness in prayer and acknowledging it. You see, friends, when God's people clasp their hands in prayer, it is the beginning of an uprising against disorder of the world, says theologian Karl Barth. And that's why the pray like this prayer actually finishes on a note of victory. And the New Living actually abbreviates it before we fully get there. But the victory note finishes and sounds and says, and when we pray, don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one because ultimately, God, we acknowledge that yours is the kingdom. We acknowledge that yours is the power and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Ron and the team are going to come and uh, lead us in a time of worship where we declare and receive the forgiveness that's offered to us. Today we stand and declare the victory that Jesus won over death and hell. And we express our need of healing and forgiveness and grace over places where we have sinned and fallen into temptation. And so our prayer team, uh, Dale and Deb Jarvis and Meg and myself and Pastor Wally will be available at the back and at the sides for you. And we want to stand with you in a journey of learning to live in freedom and forgiveness. Maybe for you, you want to come for prayer and pray for someone in the church that's experiencing a challenging time. Maybe for you, you want to come and say a prayer of thanksgiving for something that God has done in your life. Maybe it's a, a concern uh, for health for you. Maybe you want to pray for another individual in our community. And remember, it's not just that you can pray with the team members who are here for prayer. Feel freedom to go to another person in Jericho that you know and trust and say, would you pray with me? Feel a liberty to wander and say, can I pray for you, friend? There's freedom to kneel and ask for forgiveness in an area that God might be bringing to your mind that could bring you conviction of sin and yield 
where you've yielded to temptation and need to receive his grace. And so let's pray together. I'd invite you to stand if you're able and we'll pray and say, God, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. Father, we thank you for the strength that you provide to resist the evil one, where we collectively or individually have failed to live and into that and where we have uh, either left undone things that you have called us to do or where we have done things that have intentionally walked away from you, we repent. We repent of self-sufficiency. We repent of seeking our own righteousness as a way of proving to you that we're good enough to be part of your family. We lay that down and name it as idolatrous and as a work of the evil one to deceive us. And Father, we accept and receive your forgiveness and your grace offered solely on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of our own merit or works. We choose not to boast. We choose to receive the gifts that you offer of forgiveness and grace. Where there are barriers to that in individual lives and hearts, we pray, God, for your strength to stand firm against the whispering lies of the evil one. You're not forgiven for that. We pray for freedom and for a release from condemnation for those who live under that. And so, Jesus, would you open our hearts to receive your gifts in the name of your strong work on the cross, we pray. Amen.